Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we are thrilled to have AMBOSS as our sponsor for the episode. Let's hear from James, an internal medicine resident in the Bay Area, and how he uses AMBOSS. We had a patient with hyponatremia, and you know we were monitoring their sodium with free water restriction, and it looked like they were overcorrecting. Like, oh, what am I supposed to do at this point in time? What's the second line? What's the third line? What are possible options for management? The fact that as an intern, AMBOSS provided you with the amount of information at a very accessible, quick, and digestible format, I think that was something that was really helpful for the workflow. And there's many other tools that might fulfill that, but I felt like it worked well for me. I think the biggest thing was the search bar function and then that very stable formats of how they broke down that knowledge. I think that's a really big differentiating feature about AMBOSS. And CoreAM listeners can get a one-month free trial using the code CoreAM-AMBOSS. We'll link all that in the show notes for you. And with that, cue the intro. (sighs) You know, there's no place like hope. Maybe especially when you're sick. It's like hope rises to meet the stress that illness brings with it. I even walked past a sign in the cancer center that I work at that read, the only thing stronger than fear is hope. And so hope is all over the place. Patients with cancer hear about new options for cancer treatment on a weekly basis with new radiation techniques or new therapeutic mechanisms that make the power of science seem limitless. The major cancer centers that even brand themselves the City of Hope. 19th century author Dr. Orison Sweat Martin once wrote, There is no medicine like hope, no incentive so great, and no tonic so powerful as the expectation of something better tomorrow. So I ran up from clinic one day to sit with the husband and children of one of my patients with lung cancer, intubated after a major brain bleed from metastatic disease. We spoke for a long time about how much was stacked against her, about the incurable nature of her cancer, but what they wanted was really clear. Trach, PEG, LTAC placement, and continuer targeted therapy through the G-tube, and hope for recovery. Hope her current treatment kept the cancer under control, and hope that better treatments came in the future. It sentenced her to a quality of life most people wouldn't choose for themselves, but some amount of recovery wasn't strictly impossible, and it's what she would have wanted. So why was their hopefulness so difficult to take in? Honestly, I don't think I'm unique in this. In fact, everyone from the ICU attending and resident team working that day seemed to share my discomfort. We all dealt with it in different ways. Some people got jaded, they took jabs with the family, calling them crazy or unrealistic. Some even went so far as to say they were torturing a dying woman. And so it was this recurrent distress of hearing patient hopes that run counter to our expectations as clinicians and the tough dynamics it created with patients and their families that led us to think about hope as the topic for today's episode. Specifically, we want to talk about what parts of hope are adaptive, where it may become dangerous, and how we as clinicians can support patients with serious illness in their hopes. Welcome back to At the Bedside. I'm Joffer. I'm Tamar. And I'm Margo. We're joined today by one of the giants in the field of palliative care, Dr. Robert Arnold, Distinguished Professor of Medicine, Section Chief of Palliative Care and Medical Ethics, and Director of the Institute for Doctor-Patient Communication at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And he really understands the nuances of talking to patients with serious illness, not just from his long career as a palliative care doc, but also from the research that can help inform us how to do it better. There's a whole literature on how to help people both hope 
to live as long as possible and the confrontation that all of us will not live or not accomplish certain goals. Dr. Arnold is a major leader in this literature, most recently co-authoring a piece in JAMA with Drs. Abby Rosenberg and Yal Shanker titled Holding Hope for Patients with Serious Illness, which helped inspire this episode. We're going to dive into a lot of good communication pearls around this topic. But first, I'll turn it over to Tamar, who can give us some definitions and concepts to get us grounded. We have to start by defining what we're talking about. It can get a little tricky to put into exact words, but what is hope? How do we define it and how is it studied? There are a lot of scales for hope, right? There's a whole positive psychology world out there that studies hope. And we need to, as doctors, sort of looking at that literature because that literature is going to help us. One well-known model that Dr. Arnold discussed is the hope scale developed by psychologist Charles Richard Snyder and his colleagues, which defines hope in terms of setting specific goals. And they measured hope with two components. The first is agency, which is the determination to meet your goals. And the second component is pathways, which means making actual plans to meet those goals. And though that can seem like just a theoretical framework used to study the concept of hope, Dr. Arnold also modeled how it can be translated into real conversations with patients. As you think about the future, what are you hoping for? What else? What else? You know, I'm going to ask you every couple of visits, and it may change over time, and that's okay with me. I may focus you on the things that I think I have the most ability to change, and we'll talk about that. That is, we don't talk about it as if it's a unitary concept. So it's not that people have or do not have hope, but rather that they have varying degrees of hope, that they have different hopes for different things, and that hope evolves as situations change. Hopes are diverse and dynamic. And as we spoke about this with Dr. Arnold, another question that came up was whether being hopeful is the same thing as being optimistic. Optimism is different. Optimism is the degree to which an individual believes that positive outcomes will occur in the future rather than negative outcomes. And it's not necessarily tied to a specific... Hope is always about something. It's directional about specific outcomes. So hope and optimism are not the same, but they're obviously related. Interestingly, the optimism bias is one of the most common biases reported in psychology and behavioral economics. We overestimate the likelihood of good future events while underestimating the likelihood of bad ones. So, for example, most people think they're going to live longer than the average person, but then they downplay their chances of getting into a car accident. And this comes up often in the setting of critical illness and prognosis. There's a certain sense in which I just think that's normal. We hope it's better than what people told us. That's just, it seems to me, to be human nature. It's common to think things will be better for us than what the statistics might say. But just because it's normal doesn't mean it's helpful. Do some hopes offer specific benefits? Could others get in the way of realistic decision-making? Can it be a problem to be overly optimistic? I think the positive aspects of hope is that it helps people cope. It gives them something to keep working towards. It gives them goals. It gives them a sense of agency about what they have to do. I think when hope gets problematic is when people are rigid about their hope, when they only can come up with one thing that they're hoping for. That's when it turns to be a problem. When I say, what else can you hope for? And they're like, nothing. The only thing we can hope for is a miracle. Can you imagine what would happen if God had other plans? No. 
I think in those cases, I worry that the inability to be cognitively or emotionally flexible in thinking about the future may lead them to be disappointed. So it's really tricky. Hope has been shown to be an important resource for terminally ill patients and their caregivers, helping them to deal with uncertainty and improving their psychosocial well-being. But there are also studies that show that high hope and optimism scores can be correlated with poor prognostic awareness and possible overtreatment, mistaking palliative interventions for curative ones, or avoiding important decisions in advanced care planning. This trickiness is part of what raises so much moral distress for clinicians. We want our patients to have a clear and accurate understanding of what's going on, but we're sometimes afraid that being frank and honest can be harmful. And there's some interesting evidence behind that intuition. In a study of patients with incurable GI cancers, accurate prognostic awareness was associated with a lower quality of life and higher levels of anxiety. And yet the information is important to have. Patients who had a good understanding of their prognosis were found to have more realistic treatment goals. So how do we help patients navigate all this? Dr. Arnold gave us a really useful framing. You know, I know that playing the lottery, I'm unlikely to win, but everybody who plays the lottery hopes they're going to win. That's not a problem. The problem is if you build your budget based on winning the lottery. And with that in mind, we'll spend the rest of the episode tackling how to actually approach different types of hopes with our patients. Margo will start the discussion with what can feel particularly heavy as a clinician hearing patients express hopes that seem incongruent with the reality of their disease. As a hospitalist at a cancer center, I've heard a wide range of hopes, some of which I worry will never come to pass. Patients hoping for a miracle, for years when they have only weeks, for just one more round of chemo despite being on death's door. These wishes are hard to hear, and like many people, I often feel at a loss for what to say next. So I wanted to explore some strategies for understanding and addressing unrealistic hopes. Where do these hopes come from? Patients often develop their hopes on their own, but the healthcare system encourages people to dream big. When I bike home after work, I pass the Pfizer building, where foot-high letters display a motto, We believe science can cure every human from disease. Hospitals have slogans like, Miracles happen here, and we find a way. And as long as healthcare advertises miracles, patients will hope for them. In some ways, patients can't win, right? Because the societal messages and the messages of medicine push them in one way. And then when they're unrealistic, we're like mad at them because they're unrealistic. But everything on television encourages them to like hope for a miracle and never give up. And, you know, every doctor television show is about the doctors just keep searching. They'll find some crazy ass that, you know, like seriously, it's impossible. On an individual level, our language as clinicians can be misleading. It's hard to share bad news, so we soften our terms, but sometimes our language is so gentle that we don't effectively communicate what we're trying to say. It just seems to me, I've seen this so much in people who have metastatic cancer, that we say the first time we can't cure it, and then that language goes completely away. You say that the first visit, and then almost every other visit, it's the cancer is smaller. We can't see any of the cancer. We use words like it's in remission, 
And if I'm a living person who's not a clinician, if I say to you, we can't see any, I think it's cured. I wish oncologists would say, we know it's still there, but it's too small for us to see. We'd like to keep it that way, even though we know it's there. Now, I would argue we don't say that because that would be like raining on our 4th of July parade. Clinicians may be hesitant to share bad news because we don't want to take away hope. We asked Dr. Arnold, if we're slow to correct unrealistic expectations, are we colluding with our patients' hopes? It would be collusion if I didn't say, are you willing to think about it would be collusion if I said if I didn't ever give them what I my view of the future was going to be. It would be collusion if I didn't say to them, I wonder when we can think about talking about what I see is happening. That would be collusion. I'm not colluding. I'm trying to walk with them and seeing what they can hear today, given where they are in their coping and death anxiety and fear of the future. Sometimes, we end up unintentionally colluding with our patients' unrealistic hopes. We care about our patients. We want to be the doctor that helps them achieve their goals. There have even been times where my hopes have become so intertwined with those of my patients that I felt like a professional failure when they decline. I remember caring for a woman in residency who came in with edema and was found to have imaging evidence of a new metastatic malignancy. We did everything we could to stabilize her for biopsy, but she developed an infection and then a bleed, and one thing kept piling up after another until we realized that she was dying. My patient knew it before I did. I couldn't shake my hope. I don't mean to pin all the blame for unrealistic hopes on clinicians, but it's helpful to reflect on our contribution because it's one factor that we have control over. We can also control how we respond to unrealistic hopes when they come up. So many people are distressed when people hope for something that the doctor's like, oh, that's not going to happen. I have to convince them that their hope isn't true. And we found that that's not very helpful and gets leads to a scenario where the patient doesn't believe you're on their side or that you hope for what they're hoping for. While my stomach sinks every time I hear an unrealistic goal, the hope itself might not be a problem. Unrealistic hopes may make us worry that we haven't adequately communicated our concerns. But as long as the patient is planning realistically for the future, we don't need to strike down each and every statement that comes across as overly optimistic. But if a patient hopes so fervently for a particular vision of the future that it's hard to have discussions about the present, it's time to share difficult information with honesty and compassion. Start by asking for permission to share, an important first step even if the patient says no. If I offer to give information and they say, nope, I don't want it. If I give information, what I'm really saying to them is, I don't care that you said no, I'm going to tell you anyway. That will almost never go well. If I offer not to give it to them and they say they don't want it, I can say, ooh, can I tell you what I'm worried about if we don't have this conversation now? I can say, huh, tell me more, help me understand. I can name what I think is the anxiety or emotion behind it. What I can't do is give them the information if I ask them if they wanted it and they said no. An initial no doesn't mean the conversation is over. If you offer and they say no, 
it doesn't mean that you can't come back tomorrow and say, hey, yesterday you told me you really didn't want to talk about that. Help me understand. And when I say, can I talk about X, 95% of people are like, oh, okay. So in the 5% when they say no, I need to slow down. Can we talk about what will happen if he gets sicker? I don't want to hear it. That makes me really nervous because I'm worried that we may need to do some things to your dad that are are really tough on his body. And uh, a lot of people wouldn't want that. I don't want to hear it. Okay, he's full code. We're going to, you know, bodies do what bodies do. They can't hear it today. Because look, the bottom line is even if I talk to them about it, I know what they're going to say. They've told me what they're going to say. So I need to build a relationship. I need to be respectful of them. I need to be a, a witness on the journey with them and trying to push them to a place that they're not able to think about right now. If the patient has given you permission to discuss these difficult topics, the next step is to come to a better understanding of where these hopes come from. Dr. Arnold recommended approaching the situation with curiosity and humility. Well, and you have to be curious, right? If they're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, where does the hope come from? And often they have stories to tell where we've been wrong before. So I should remain cautious because I'm not great at predicting the future, right? I joke to my patients that if I could predict the future, I'd take them to Las Vegas, we'd all retire in a weekend. And yet I'll be as honest as possible about what I think is going to happen or what I'm worried is going to happen. And then we'll make decisions based on sort of where, where we're going. Hope worry statements can be helpful. I'll say, I hope I'm wrong in what I think is going to happen. And I don't want you to feel unprepared. Remember, you're not on your own. If patients or their surrogates are singularly focused on an unrealistic goal, we can partner with other services to understand and support their underlying emotional needs. People who are like, I can only hope for this kind of people, they didn't come out of nowhere. They have a history and a way of coping in the past that I need to understand. I need to be more curious about them. And sometimes I need to go to people who are smarter about psychological concepts than me, my social workers, my psychologists, my psychiatrists, and say, hey, help me understand how to, what could I do to open more paths for them. Dr. Arnold mentioned some strategies for gently bringing patients into prognostic awareness in ways that help ease the emotional burden of looking at difficult truths. One of the things that a very smart doctor taught me is that I talk about their body separate from them. So your body seems to be sort of getting sicker. It's not them. It's not that they don't want to get better. Their body has made different choices than what they were hoping for. This can ease us into a conversation where we can think more concretely about the future. And I'll say, can we talk about what we might see from his body if it starts to get better? And what we might see if it, that is, we begin to do a little hypothetical planning. And that's it for today. We come back. We see how that sits with them. I don't push them. I offer, would you like to hear what my worry is? Because in the end, his body is going to do what his body does. And regardless of modern medicine, if he's going to die, he's going to die, right? We like to think we can keep bodies alive forever, but the truth is we can't. 
the body can continue to be a touchstone for reality testing throughout each encounter. What's your body telling you? I can do a functional assessment. Compared to three months ago, how's your appetite doing? How's your weight doing? How's your energy doing? Right? If all of them are doing worse and they're saying it to me, I say, oh, sounds like things aren't going the way we'd want it. I'm floating balloons to see how they respond to them. What's going through your head as you think about the future? What are you most concerned about? What are you hoping for? What else? What else? And then do you want to hear what I think? And I listen for uncertainty or sadness. Because if somebody says, I just don't want to, I don't want to hear what you think. I know they're not, isn't good news. What are they telling me? I think they're telling me, I know things aren't going well. I just don't want to have it out there in the ether. And then I can say, I hear you. It feels like it's just too sad. So instead of naming it, we talk about it one step removed, right? And that may be the best they can do for today. That's okay. To sum up, it's worth thinking about how our language might contribute to unrealistic hopes so that we don't unintentionally build people up for disappointment. When a patient shares an unrealistic goal, don't automatically assume it's a problem. While these hopes can make us uncomfortable, they're really only a problem if they prevent the patient from planning realistically for the future ask permission to share difficult information, and approach unrealistic hopes with curiosity and compassion. Okay, so we have many tools for cultivating prognostic awareness, even for those people who seem fixated on hopes that run against our clinical expectations. But this is only the beginning of our work, not the focus of it. I think doctors, we don't like to be wrong, and so when people talk about things happening that we think is very unlikely, we feel a need to correct them. And part of what I'm saying is correcting people. You can try once, but if it doesn't work once, doing it over and over again, not sort of like, not likely to work. And then I just want you to be more curious about it and try to expand rather than telling them that what they're hoping for is not likely to happen. Yeah, so simply fighting against unrealistic hopes is not likely to be successful. There has to be something beyond it to strive for in the conversation. When I see people in the ICU who I, everybody's like, the family doesn't get it. And the family says the doctors all say he's going to die, but we can't give up. We're hopeful. I'm like, heck yes. You're a loving son and daughter. The key question is, what is it to give up? The key question is, how can I hope for things that people don't think is going to happen, and yet think about whether they may and help my loved one have as good of existence in the time that they're going to have. It's not, will they give up the hope that there's going to be an unexpected miracle? I can't affect that. And those people are convinced that the doctors don't care about their loved one because all they've done is try to convince the family that the family's hopes aren't going to come true. And so part of what I want you to do is stop pushing them, but give some space for them to not have to defend their hope against you, not have to make them be the good guys who are protecting their dad and you the bad guys 
who won't give their dad a chance. And just be curious about them, about this loving and caring family who sees things differently than you do. And so my biggest, again, the reason we wrote this article is that we saw people wanting to convince them their hope was wrong. And that just never seems to be helpful and seems to lead the doctors and nurses to be unhappy and the family or patient to be unhappy and thinking that there's a better way of being curious about their hope, about expanding the hope, about joining with the hope at the same time, we're worried it may not be able to be accomplished. Right. And one of the central themes about hope we want you to take away from this episode is that patient hopes are not this narrow, fragile commodity anchored only on certain outcomes. Hope is, or at least can be, so much more than that. Because we're doctors, we think the only thing that people hope for is living as long as possible. I don't think we give them enough credit. And I can have one hope dashed and have other hopes fulfilled, and I'm okay with that. You know, Tony Bach, who's one of my colleagues, talks about what I want is a portfolio of hope, some of which are I can clearly help them accomplish, some of which may be stretches, some of them may be like playing the lottery. The key is to have a portfolio of hope. That's what gets you up in the morning. It's not just hoping for one thing. It's once people start getting narrow that they may need help in expanding that hope portfolio, both through curious questioning like Dr. Arnold mentioned, but also through prompts or suggestions from obsessed clinicians. Interviews with seriously ill patients shown that hope can be found in many different areas of life, and particularly those areas where we can offer patients more control. That might mean finding control over physical symptoms, finding emotional, social, or practical supports in navigating daily life, or in participating in activities that enhance their sense of dignity, like life review or legacy work. Even something as simple as humor can be a hope-giving practice, for reasons we've gone through in an earlier episode on At the Bedside. The point is that being curious and being explicit about how we talk about hope can help patients find more of it in their world, while also helping them to prioritize the most achievable ones. I just ask, what else are they hoping for? I just keep saying, what else? And then say, let's, you know, I think that, can we focus on this one for today? That is, I can direct attention to one thing rather than another thing. And that will often help us foster hope and foster trust that I care about their hopes and that I'm listening to them as people. I can just say, you hope not to have so much pain so you can go to the 4th of July picnic. Let's work on that. I think I can make a difference there. Remember, by putting your attention on some hopes rather than other hopes, you also give an implicit message. That's okay. I can do it implicitly. The problem for many people is actually that we hold multiple conflicting hopes and realities in our head at the same time, with a lot of ambivalence between them. And this is totally normal. Dr. Arnold and his colleagues described hope using three C's, that hope is complex, contextual, and continuous. For many people, I can know X and still hope for Y. We're a little bit like Alice in Wonderland. We can believe both A and non-A. That's what's so interesting about us as humans. And it's okay as long as I can hold them in my head and I can go back and forth between them. Being a palliative care doctor in an oncology setting is helping people go back and forth between 
wanting to live longer and being able to confront death and living as good as possible in the moment. And it seems to me that's what we do. And one of the ways we do that is to diversify hope. It's that you can think of other things that you're hoping for. So if you can't live as long as you want, you know, maybe you can role model to your adult children what it's like to die well. Maybe you can have that vacation that you always wanted. A lot of times, this ends up breaking down around quantity versus quality of life and the tension between striving for an uncertain future versus living in the present. How do I help them negotiate that? And how do I both hold that they have different hopes and get them to talk about those different hopes and to negotiate those different hopes? To a certain extent, part of this is how do I help them cope with getting and not getting things that they're hoping for and still in the moment enjoy their lives as much as possible. Because one of the things that I see as a palliative care doctor is people have hopes for the future that completely destroy their current lived experience. And so one of my jobs is as they're hoping for a future that may or may not happen, how can we enjoy their current lived experience and have in the moment hopes, in the here and now hopes, that we can help them live as good as possible? Like Margot was saying, we as clinicians can have the most actionable influence through helping patients not plan their whole life around uncertain or unrealistic hopes, hopes that may lead them to disappointment or even catastrophe. In other words, helping patients commit to some preparation in the here and now while allowing hope for the future. If someone says, I know that you told me I'm going to live five months, I'm convinced I'm going to live five years, they're making a prediction about the future that neither of us know who's going to be right. The question is, as they hope to live for five years, can they also acknowledge and plan for five months? I'm more than okay with people hoping to live for five years, even if I think it's going to be less true. The example I'll I'll tell is of a friend who had ovarian cancer. This was 10 years ago. She progressed through two cycles of ovarian cancer. She went on a microbiotic diet because that was going to cure the cancer. She therefore could explain her losing weight because of the microbiotic diet. Two days before she died, she wouldn't eat a Krispy Kreme donut because she was still convinced the diet might kick in. On the other hand, she stopped doing chemotherapy. She agreed to hospice. She moved in with family. That is, she never gave up her hope the diet was going to work and she was going to be cured. She could hold both at the same time. We have to believe that patients are resilient enough to look into many possible futures when making healthcare decisions. We've all heard the saying, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. But one of the better ways I've heard it said is, hope for the best, prepare for the rest. And this is a better way of saying it because, well, first it rhymes, and rhyming is always better, but also there's so many possible futures to plan for. It's not just about death. More importantly, doing this planning doesn't put their hope in jeopardy. One of my colleagues looked at advanced care planning and did it influence hopefulness? It didn't, by the way. So, because people are worried that if you do advanced care planning, people 
you know, give up hope. And so there is science out there. And I would urge that we need to sort of, particularly those of us who deal with serious illness, we need to sort of think about what that science shows and it will continue to show. Okay, so in full review, hope has a lot to offer. It's not only our default tendency as humans, there are ways we can expand and move between many different hopes for patients with serious illness. There can definitely become times when patients anchor on certain unlikely hopes in ways that we as clinicians find distressing. But we hope, uh, oh hey, look, I did it right there again. But we hope we've offered a number of different tools today to help gently probe for prognostic awareness and plan for different possible futures. Specifically, we talked about asking permission to discuss other possible outcomes, approaching with humility and curiosity, avoiding fights about unrealistic hopes, while moving towards the fullest possible portfolio of hopes, and helping prioritize between them, all while supporting patients in coping and living in the present. Easy, right? Now, I will also say that, because I know that you have a lot of medical students and residents who listen to this, these are not things that I was very good at at the beginning. And I would say that role-playing and saying the words, this is not an intellectual game. You have to practice saying it. You have to find words that fit your personality. Practice having these conversations and get feedback on these conversations because that's the only way that you learn the communication skills that you really need. Getting to that skillful place may have as much to do with our hopes for and really our faith in patients as it does in their hopes. Everyone's hopeful. They're just hopeful for different things. And I just need to be curious about that story. Be curious about hope. Be curious about what the patient is hoping for. Be open-minded about it. Try to cultivate different things that they're hoping for and view your job as not correcting their hope, but paying attention to some hopes more than other hopes and sort of allowing their hope to grow in some domains and not grow in other domains as they go through their journey. Thanks for tuning in. We know these topics can stir up more questions and answers, and we look forward to hearing more about your experiences with speaking to patients about hope. Please continue the conversation with us online at our Facebook page, on Twitter, or email us directly. Find show notes and contact information for us on our website, coreimpodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to our show, please give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. It helps other people find us. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve. And as always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Finally, special thanks to all our collaborators on this episode. Our wonderful audio editor, Doc Shbatia, our illustrator, Michael Shen, moral and executive support from Shreya Trivedi, and most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.